0: Welcome wonderful people! Thank you for joining Women's Empowerment Power Hour with Dr. Jennifer. I am Dr. Jennifer, and I am thrilled that you have chosen to listen to our show. We have a pretty powerful one today, so make sure you are buckled in. We're going to be talking about healthy weight versus happy weight. I have an honest and impactful conversation with Dr. Sylvia, who is a bariatrician, and I ask all the weight, weight loss, and healthy weight questions that you want to ask your doctor but never have time or honestly are just afraid to ask. But first, I want to start this discussion with some research on overweight and obesity. The prevalence of obesity in the US is about 42% according to the CDC. So this is a significant public health problem which is trending in the wrong direction. I also want to note here that people who are overweight or obese are discriminated against and that is increasing by a lot. 66% 66% increase, according to NIH. Stigmas about people who are obese are extremely problematic. Obese people are blamed for their weight. And as we'll hear in a minute, blame and shame, as Dr. Sylvia says. Not a number of studies have shown that these are very harmful stereotypes of overweight and obese individuals that include thoughts that they are lazy, not intelligent, don't have any self-discipline or self-control, they don't have willpower, and they are not professionally successful. Weight stigma and associated biases remain socially acceptable Negative attitudes toward overweight and obese people have been reported coming from figures of authority like employers, teachers, physicians, nurses, medical students, dietitians, psychologists, and the list goes on. Being overweight isn't a health condition to these people, it's a badge of shame. But in my discussion today with Dr. Sylvia, we are going to unpack some of these issues. Can you have extra pounds and still be healthy? What is the connection between age and changing hormones and weight? My powerful discussion about weight and women with Dr. Sylvia is coming up next. Welcome to Women's Empowerment Power Hour. Dr. Sylvia, I so appreciate having you join us for this really important discussion.
1: If you could start by introducing yourself, that would be really helpful. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Jennifer. I'm super excited to be here. I am Dr. Sylvia Gonson Boley. There are a few Dr. Sylvias out there, so I want to make sure you get the right one. <laughs> but I am a dual board certified internal medicine and obesity medicine specialist. I've actually curated my own thing called integrative obesity care, where really we focus on getting to the root cause from a body, mind, spirit perspective, and really understanding what are those controllable and uncontrollable factors that lead people to be stuck in that loop of carrying extra weight not just physically, but also emotionally and spiritually. So as a internist and as a obesity specialist, I help to connect you with the metabolic tools you need, but also working from a mental and spiritual perspective with the mindset breakthroughs so that you cannot just lose weight, but keep it off and live healthy and happy and whole. So that is what I do.
0: Great. So important. And so much right there just to unpack. I'm going to, just dive right in. So Dr. Sylvia, is obesity a medical condition or is it a lifestyle choice?
1: Ooh, Dr. Jennifer, that is a great question. And it's actually a very simple one. It is a medical condition, okay? We have enough science now to realize that the old calories in versus calories out approach, eat less, move more, was not based on actual science. We know that there is a complex of system of hormones, of inflammatory markers, of different factors that are causing your body to store excess fat. And the body, it does favor fat storage. So obesity is a complex neuroendocrine disease of excess body fat storage. And it is not just based on lifestyle choices. And we see this, right? Because for instance, two people could grow up in the same home, eating the same food, yet one person have the disease of obesity and the other person doesn't. So there must be something that's going on in that person's body that is triggering their body to store extra fat.
0: But at the same time, we are bombarded every day, all day, especially women in hundreds, thousands of different ways of messages telling us that we are in control of our body size by what we put in our mouth and how we move our body, right?
1: Yeah. And it's just not true. (laughs)
0: uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And there's lots of really good research, as you said, that That supports the fact that it's not what we put in our mouth. There are so many different factors. Uh, It's almost like the thinking, well, if you just cut out that coffee from Starbucks, then you can balance your budget. Or if you just (laughs) cut out that donut for breakfast, then you'd lose 100 pounds. It's just
1: not that simple. Exactly. Exactly. There are over 100 what I call weight gain triggers or what the obesity society would call them is triggers for energy imbalance. So there's over a hundred of these factors. They found somebody I have a hundred that I screen for in my practice. And that can be anything from not just what's going on inside of the body, but also things externally. So things that are beyond your control, how you were born, where you were born. For instance, babies that are born by C-section or cesarean section are more likely to develop obesity in childhood and in adulthood. Also being born in an urban environment, you're more likely to develop obesity. So these are things beyond your control. Having an incidence of childhood trauma, there was something called adverse childhood events. Um, If you score high on that, you are 1.5 times more likely or in some studies, three times more likely to have a higher BMI or be Uh at risk for obesity. So there are so many things that are outside of your control that influence his, how your body will store extra fat.
0: Yeah. Wow. Again, so much to underscore there. So You mentioned that our bodies will hold on to fat. And this is sort of, we go back to when we were roaming across the (laughs) savanna, we needed to conserve calories and our bodies are still sort of thinking that we're roaming across the savanna, but we're not. We have more food and especially cheap food. Our environment makes it easy to uh,
1: take in two more calories than we need. So I think you're raising a great point, right? Like our bodies were built, created, designed, whatever you believe, but we don't need the same mechanisms that we used to. And I think that's an important point for people to understand because it isn't your fault. The fact is that when like before we carried our pantry in our body. If you start to think about the function of fat, fat is not all bad. Fat is a functional organ in our bodies. When our body fat levels, especially as women drop too low, it puts us at risk for not only hormonal disturbances, but cardiac dysfunction. So heart disease, heart dysfunction, bone dysfunction. So we need fat in our body, but it's only when we have excess fat And that threshold is a little bit different for everybody else. We use some, you know, generalized tools like the body mass index, but that doesn't really get at it at an individual level. You really need to know someone's body composition and really know, okay, individually what they need. So we have a certain threshold where it's, where it's, then the fat gets too much because basically the fat cells kind of smush on one another. They start to release inflammatory products. They start to press on vital organs. So I think if we can remember that our bodies are used to kind of carrying this internal pantry, which is the uh, fat cells, then we won't need to keep going to our home pantry and grabbing things. And then also, if you think about it, we also were not really designed to be in an environment where we're so immersed with food, where there's like the the flashing neon lights and the smells, yeah, you say eat, 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 eat. So that these are these psychological drivers too that then stimulate hormone hormones in your body to want to eat. So being aware of it is helpful, so that you kind of know what this fight is. That it's not a fight, but you can work collaboratively with your body, so you know what the body is doing. So you're like, okay, I can work with this. So when you start to have those symptoms,
0: yeah. As a physician, do you think that assessing a person's weight is an important part of evaluation? And that includes the BMI or body
1: mass index? Ooh, now, ooh, now you're getting spicy. (laughs) (laughs) You're getting spicy. Let me, let this, I feel like this is one of those questions that one day when you're like famous and you're on like 2020, they (laughs) dig up this article and they answer. So let me be cautious how I answer and answer with wisdom. Um, Yes. Weight is, is a vital sign, like your blood pressure, like your body temperature, like your heart rate. It is a vital sign that can give us information that is useful. Now it's one of the most misused vital signs because of weight bias. And we all have some form of bias or have been exposed to, and that's negative thinkings towards a person based on their weight. And usually it's the larger body because Mm -hmm. of many reasons, right? So I, but yes, it can, but it must be done in the right context. So you bring up the body mass index. This is one of my soapbox topics. The body mass index was designed, you know, was influenced or created in 1832 in belgium so Uh and then it was adapted to our society in the 70s and then widespread adaptation in 1985 there are many people that were not really included in these studies and these norms right Uh and now we're seeing the fallout of it so the body mass index is not really even designed for individual weight management and if you think about it it makes sense right you go to a chart you look up a height. And so for people who don't know the body mass index is, it's your weight divided by height in meters square, your weight in kilograms divided by your height in meters square. So what people will traditionally do is go to a chart, say, okay, you're 5'3". Okay, you're supposed to weigh 108 based on a body mass index of like 18 to 25. Now, if you look at the range, it's probably like a 60 pound range. So it doesn't make sense to tell somebody that, okay, you should weigh this one particular number. It really Mm -hmm. was made to say, people who are this height will have this range of weight and they are not at risk for fat mass or weight related disease. And we're really trying to figure out with the body mass index, what is the threshold of body fat that someone may be at risk for a disease or metabolic risk, increased metabolic risk. So it's not even really to say from a cosmetic perspective, you need to look like this or you need to weigh that. And then the other thing with body mass index, it really actually doesn't tell us body fat. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> so that's uh-huh. the kicker. It's not telling us what yeah. we're trying to find out from it. So, what I propose, and this is what I talk about in my best selling book, Embrace You Your Guide to Transforming Weight Loss Misconceptions into Lifelong Wellness. What I propose is that we look at weight in two components your healthy weight, which that is clinical facts and it's based on four functions, which I'll tell you, and then your happy weight, which that is just based on feelings. Only you can determine your happy weight but there's a lot of negative influences, especially as women that kind of diminish our happy weight and make it muddle what it is for us. So I'll pause here. And if you want me to go into healthy weight versus happy weight, I can.
0: Yeah. So what is the difference between healthy weight and happy weight?
1: Yeah. So like I said, healthy weight is facts, clinical facts, and Mm -hmm. that's going to be based on data. So we need to get some data for that. And then happy weight, that's based on feelings. So how do you feel about your body? How do you interpret your body? So um, healthy weight, I look at four components. So I mentioned that body mass index, body mass index is not the best tool, but unfortunately, so much of our research, so much of our um, like access to different medications, different tools are based on body mass index. So it's going to be around for a while. So the best case scenario that we can do right now is to use some of the specific adjusted body mass index charts that are out there. So there have been charts proposed by different um, researchers such as Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford based out of um, Harvard or Mass General. And then also by Neville, a group based in the UK where we look at, okay, how does the threshold for obesity change based on, for instance, race and ethnicity? based on age, based on biological sex, or some might say hormone status, right? High estrogen, high testosterone. How does that change based on the fact, whether or not you have metabolic health conditions like diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia that are commonly associated with having excess body fat. So we can look at these specific charts and they can tell us, okay, So for this specific group of people, their threshold may be a little bit higher than the standard body mass index of obesity, which says 30 kilograms divided by meters square. So somebody, for instance, a black woman with diabetes based on this specific adjusted chart would actually have a body mass index threshold of 33. Okay. Does that make sense? I know yeah. I said a lot of numbers, so it will actually be, it will actually be higher. So yeah, all it's getting at is that we really need to personalize the way we look at obesity. So you look at that specific adjusted BMI chart, then you also look at body composition. So what mm-hmm. percentage of muscle mass does someone have compared to muscle fat? You also look at where is the fat present? Yeah. Not all fat is created equal. Like you know, women, we were made to have some junk in our trunk. All right, Mm -hmm. we need to have some some booty. Like we're made for that. We're that coke bottle figure. I mean, some of us don't. That's okay. But you know, we're made to have it it, it carried in certain places. Mm -hmm. And we found that that is not associated with increased risk of heart of heart disease or insulin resistance. But it's that belly or visceral fat in the abdomen Uh that puts you at risk for heart disease. So looking at the waist circumference can help with that. And then, like I mentioned, do you have any metabolic health indicators? So we can check your labs and see is your cholesterol, your triglycerides, are your good cholesterol? What are those levels? Are they out of range? Because do you have insulin resistance or diabetes? Um, Do you have high inflammatory markers for suggestive of heart disease? So these are the things that we need to be looking at to determine healthy weight. And as you can see, that was a lot more complex that's, than saying, come on, step on this scale. Let me look yeah. at this chart. You're overweight, go eat, uh-huh. eat some salad and run outside. Yeah, exactly. People are used
0: to hearing. Eat less, run a marathon. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> so um, you used a word several times that I'd like to circle back to, and that's hormones, yeah. um, which plays a, a Big role in the weight, especially of women, mm. and I'm going to ask about two things that are are uh, related: um, polycystic ovarian syndrome and hormones, and then hormones as we age and weight. I both that that's a lot to unpack, but they're both correlated mm-hmm. with body weight.
1: Yeah. And I love that. Actually, I mean, when we talk about hormones, hormones are just messengers in the body, right? And there's several that come into play with, in terms of how our body stores fat, how our body stores sugar and how our appetite goes. But when it comes to the, what we're talking about is like the sex hormones, we call them, right? And that's, there's usually, there are five times that there are major shifts in a woman's life. And I call them the five Ps because I am a poet. I'm a closet poet. And I love alliteration. So the five P's for women um, in the hormonal shifts, and they're actually related because it's the same estrogen, testosterone, androgens that are being interplayed. So they're going, the first P is puberty, right? That's when we're Mm -hmm. going to see the body favor fat storage. Then if you do get pregnant, then that's going to be another time that the body favors fat storage based on the hormonal shifts. Then the post- partum period, which we don't give nearly enough time. I just did a talk about body bounce back myth or whack, right? Like we need to stop acting like the body should snap back right away. So postpartum, and that includes after the time when you're lactating and breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. Then there's the perimenopausal. Or postmenopausal phrase, so when you're going through menopause. And then, like you mentioned, I always include the disease condition of PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome, because that is the most common um, hormonal disruption or disorder in women of, we say, childbearing age. So in post puberty, pre-menopause women. So between the ages, usually of 18 to about 55, that's the most common hormonal disorder. And what's going on there is that, and in, in really in any of these stages is that your body has a shift in the estrogen levels. And then there's a higher amount of testosterone and other androgens that's going to favor your body to store fat, usually in the abdomen and Mm -hmm. usually putting you at risk for something called insulin resistance and insulin is another major hormone that your body needs to store sugar properly great
0: thank you so i am trained in public health and one of the basic tenets of public health is harm reduction Mm -hmm. um so for example if we're trying to help someone quit smoking If they cut back from, let's say, three packs a day to three cigarettes a day, that's a win because three cigarettes a day is much better than three packs of cigarettes a day. Mm -hmm. Not that we don't want them to quit, but we're reducing their harm. So I'm circling around to um, making foods the enemy. So, Mm. oh, don't eat that fried, Mm. whatever. Don't, oh, you cannot have that brownie um, demonizing these foods. Mm -hmm. Uh, So to me, eh, that's the wrong approach. What do you think of that?
1: Oh, I totally agree with you. So I, the way that I teach it and the way I talk about it, both in the book and in my um, work with clients one-on-one is like, in reframing from good or bad foods. And I have to preface this by saying I was a chronic dieter from like the age of 15 to 32. I came of age in the 80s and the 90s, early 2000s, when we were all eating those like cardboard crackers and cookies that we (laughs) pretended (laughs) were good, right? Because you were like always on somebody's diet, right? So I came of age, like, even though really metabolically, I was very like fit up until... I had my first child and that was my obesity trigger. I gained 60 pounds with that pregnancy and kept about 40 pounds on for two years due to a combination of my weight gain triggers, which are sleep deprivation, stress, people pleasing, and perfectionism. And cheap pizza. Let me add the cheap yeah. pizza. That was my of <laughs> choice. So, like these are the things that kept the weight on, you know, for me. So I I would say that what I learned in my journey of, you know, breaking free of diet culture and recovering from emotional eating is really to stop labeling foods as good or bad and start to think about food as fuel. And with it being fuel, is is this helpful or is it unhelpful? for me. And I'd like to give the example of broccoli, right? Broccoli is people usually think about, oh, it's healthy and it's good for you. At 11 PM, if I eat broccoli, it is not good for me. It is very harmful. Like it's not helpful because I will have gas. I will not sleep. The next day I'll be cranky. The next day I will emotionally eat because my cortisol levels are high and I'm Mm -hmm. stressed, right? So we have to change labeling foods as good or bad and really think about how is this food impacting me specifically? And understanding that, so and then I think with that lens, and it does empower people to to make more um, conscious decisions around the food that they're eating. My food is fuel. Um, is this helpful for me? Is it harmful? And what's best? What do I really need at this time? Because I mentioned emotional eating. A lot of times we're not eating because we're hungry, but we're eating because there's some sort of emotional or spiritual need that we're trying to fill with food. And yeah. it never will satisfy you. Uh-huh.
0: It satisfy you. But it's often cheap and handy and it, mm-hmm. it gives us, you know, that rush of dopamine, it gives us mm-hmm. the feel good chemicals. So um, yeah, that's, it's an easy way to sort of self-soothe, not a healthy way to self-soothe necessarily, but I don't know. What's your response to that?
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah. And we've been acclimated from a very young age to use food to soothe, right? Like yes, <laughs> from the time you're a baby, essentially like she's crying, put a uh-huh. passy in her mouth. Yeah, something to eat, right? Like we're, and and this is, it's funny because I will ask my clients this. I said, did you use a pacifier as a baby? You know what I mean? Because Uh there is like, while there's no RCT to back that up, I see Uh that correlation. So I think um, it is getting to the root and getting to the origin of where did these habits form? Where did this relationship with food form um, is is key? But to your point, what I hear you saying is that It's so much easier to just eat the food than do this deep dive. That's why you can't really try to heal emotional eating um, without support you need support tools, right? And so part of the support that's built into it is number one, I think every craving first and foremost has a biological source. We talked Mm -hmm. about the hormones, right? So sometimes you're craving something sweet and it could be there's insulin resistance, or it could be that, you know, insulin insensitivity where your body's not getting enough sugar in the parts that it needs it. So it's telling you eat sugar. Now the emotional part of it is, okay, usually when I crave sugar, I want to go for a brownie because that makes me feel warm and gooey uh-huh. and loved inside. So I think it's addressing the biological need with a more helpful form of complex carbohydrate or something that you could have, but then doing the deeper work through the aid of, for me, I went use a therapist. So like doing therapy, yep. um, having friends that get it, that you can talk to being able to express your emotions. A lot of us have been kind of taught that it's not socially acceptable to have emotions, especially yep. If you're a high achieving woman, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're expected, you don't wanna be seen as too emotional or you wanna hold it together. So we have to have safe spaces to express our emotions. So, what do you say are some practical steps
0: that women and even girls can do to deal with the negative inputs that we get from around us almost constantly? and that we are too big. We are too fat. We have to hate our thighs. We can't embrace our curves and instead fall in love with our bodies.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, this is part of the whole embrace you movement, right? And starting from that place of self-love, to make any change. Because I think the mainstream of what diet culture, what the weight loss industry, what we have been kind of brainwashed from a very young age. And the studies show that this form of body distortion, of body image distortion, it can start as early in girls as age seven. Mm -hmm. And that as a mom of a young daughter is really scary because I have a toddler now and, you know, she thinks she's the best thing to slice bread. She mm-hmm. looks in the mirror, you can't tell her. And I never want her to lose that. So I think thinking about how can we protect our girls? And even as we, the wounded girls that are still walking in this, what it has to do with is almost unlearning and deprogramming um, what we have been taught. And understanding the source of where that comes from, right? A lot of this came from, if you're not happy with your body, then you're going to buy my product you're going yeah. to do this. So it, it is the influence of commercialism and capitalism that yeah. began way before our generation. And then even in marginalized communities and minority communities that our bodies were weaponized, right. And were a form of racial oppression. So yeah. being able to understand that is so key to then having that awareness to kind of unlearn some of these behaviors. So um, I'm an advocate for anyone, um, yes, doing more reading and more research, because I tend to come from a cognitive lens. But then it does also take, um, it may take going to therapy, getting some form of CBT, maybe working with a coach as well. But in the, the small things that you could do on a daily basis is looking in the mirror and learning to just say, I love you, like mm-hmm. had, treating yourself like you would your best friend. Because a lot of us, and I went through this on my own journey, is like a lot of us, we talk to ourselves in a way we would never talk to our probably our worst enemy, honestly, yep. like, and so what are the words that you're saying to yourself? And would you say that to a child, your child. Mm-hmm. And, and so if you wouldn't, then let's change that. And I usually will have my clients start saying, um, positive affirmations, but not just like, because sometimes positive affirmations could just be like, you're saying things and you don't believe them. Yeah. So start with mm-hmm. what you believe about yourself. So if you can look in the mirror, I usually say, make it physical. Cause a lot of women were good at saying like, I am a good helper I make yeah. eyes like, you know what I'm saying? Like, we'll start with what we do or like what we do for other people. Yeah. But like the goal is to get to the look in the mirror and say, I am sexy and I am beautiful. Like uh-huh. all the cellulose, and that can be a hard leap. It took me a long time to get yeah. there. So maybe you can start with what you do like about yourself. You have beautiful eyes. Like mm-hmm. you're, oh my gosh, I love the way your nose upturns just a little bit. Mm, your lip is so cute and when you wear that bright pink lipstick you look amazing so like give yourself a compliment and say that in the affirmation like each day and then try to build out so it may start then to your face then it starts to the lower parts of your body and keep going from there while mm-hmm. you're doing the deeper work to deprogram some of these thoughts and beliefs you have about yourself
0: Really important. And I would add, as a mom of a tween daughter, really check yourself and be careful what you are inadvertently Mm -hmm. passing along to the next generation. Oh, my Uh, God. Right. Just just model to our girls, Mm -hmm. whether they're your children or not model loving yourself loving whatever you look like however you show up you are the best you and that little girl she's watching you and she's listening to you and so you fake it till you believe it in front of
1: the girls and then work on believing it exactly exactly and and the thing about it too is I think that's why um it's so important to start with what you do believe about yourself even if it's the smallest notion you talk about harm reduction earlier from a public health mm-hmm. perspective right where we're like decreasing so it's almost the opposite of thing right so start with what is that positive thing that you believe about yourself and then grow from that that little seed of belief so if it is you know just that I look great when I uh-huh. wear this shirt or something yeah. like that, that you could, you can start from there and can really grow because I do find sometimes there's, it can, like kids are good lie detectors. Is that a comment that my daughter would be yeah. like, <laughs> why are you sad? And I'm like, Hey, how'd you know that I'm smiling? I know. You know what I mean? So I think if we can start from what we believe, or we can even be honest about these conversations, like this yes. is the other thing too. Like I can't, I hear where you're coming from. Cause I feel that way about my body sometimes, but you know what? I'm on a self-love journey and I'm learning to love every part of me. So we can do this together. I think honesty, especially for this generation, because they're so perceptive is so yes. key. So like just being, honest and growing. And a lot of it, like we grew up with honesty, but it was negative honesty, right? We only heard the negative, like, Oh, I'm so fat. Oh, yeah. I need to lose weight. Oh, my stomach that, you know, we heard the negative. So why not just flip it and start with the smallest part of the positive? And then also I thought one thing I think is great um, is like limiting the negative influences, whether that's coming from television, whether it's coming from social media, you know, social media is a wonderful networking tool. It's a wonderful way to get to know people. So turning off those accounts that trigger those negative feelings or emotions or make you feel like you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Or don't look as good as you want to look.
0: Yeah. Just being mindful of what you're allowing into Mm -hmm. your psychological health
1: and being, yeah,
0: being exposed to those, what can be really damaging influences on social media. And it's, it's so pervasive it's almost um, it would be like whack-a-mole but we have to be mindful so i do want to ask you about weight loss medicine mm-hmm. um this is a burgeoning industry you might say do you have any thoughts on weight loss medicine yeah.
1: And first of all, this is not new. What is, it's again the media sensationalism yeah. of it, right? Like uh-huh. our first people have been using some sort of intervention to augment their weight and their body probably since the beginning of time, of mm-hmm. course, right? But our pharmacological industry began in the 50s with it. And even now, I think you're referring, of course, to the whole Ozempic thing, which I've written quite a bit about. And then we'll go be so some This is the GLP-1 agonist. They're um, a group of medications based on incretins, which are hormones that influence the brain and the gut and, and help us feel fuller Um, and Fuller. So this is like the latest rage, but they've actually been around for quite a bit of time. And I think to the point of that, obesity is not a lifestyle choice. And there are complex metabolic factors, like I mentioned going on, some people will really need medications to help them, not just with weight reduction. But again, I love this philosophy you brought up of harm reduction to reduce their risk of, diabetes, heart disease, hyperlipid, like all these things that run rampant because obesity itself is associated with over 200 diseases. Yeah. So we want to um, keep in mind that it is not necessarily cosmetic why people are using these medications, even though Mm -hmm. there are people misusing and abusing them, right? Yeah. Yeah prescribing them wrong. But for our people, for our patients that actually do have the disease of obesity or are at risk of recurrent obesity, these medications can be life-changing and life-saving. So I am a early adapter and have been using them since I started my career in medicine 12 years ago. Uh-huh. And I'm excited that there's more advancement, but I think we really have to um, be careful so that they don't that the cost and the access is not driving yes. and worsening health disparities. And that's yes. something I've been um, vocal about also. Yeah, that is
0: an excellent point. Who is is reimbursing for it or not mm-hmm. and who can access it? Really excellent and extremely important point. So in closing, can you share how someone might get in touch with you, if they're interested in working with you, or I highly recommend that you check out Dr. Sylvia's blog, Embrace You blog, full of just really useful, practical information. And then how can someone get in touch with you if they'd like to work with you?
1: Absolutely. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you so much, um, Dr. Jennifer, for your platform and for the incredible work that you are doing to uplift and empower women, because this is what it takes us having these honest conversations and sharing, having safe sharing spaces. So thank you so much, first and foremost, for having me. Yeah. Yeah, so again, I'm Dr. Sylvia Gonson Boley, and I am an integrative bariatrician. I am a best selling author and also the founder of Embrace You Weight and Wellness, where we specialize in a body, mind, spirit approach to weight loss from using your customized metabolic tools and mindset breakthroughs. And so you can connect with me by going to my website, embraceyouweightloss.com and in clicking the connect tab. And there we have a clarity quiz. And so that will connect, get a little bit of information about you. Um, what your needs might be, and then connect you with the right programs and services that we have. We have everything from just using the um, Embrace You book, and then we'll soon have it by the time this airs an online course that goes along with that, but until all the way up to working one-on-one with me and my team, where we have a combination of one-on-one concierge telehealth services and coaching, and then also group sessions as well. So I look forward to to connecting with you at embraceyouweightloss.com. And then you can also follow me um, on social media as well, as well at embraceumd.
0: Great. Thank you. And I really would encourage you to check that out. I know I learned some things from the blog and I've learned some things from talking with you, Dr. Sylvia. So thank you so much for your time and for sharing and for all that you do to help women be the
1: healthiest best versions of themselves. Amen. Well, thank you so much. And it is just so refreshing to share space with another like one woman. So just want to encourage you and your audience that you are incredible. And in whatever you do, whatever changes you want to make in your life to remember to start by always embracing you.
0: Well, I can't do any better than that. So I'm closing with that. Thank you so much. (laughs) Take care. Bye. (laughs) You too. Thanks for joining us for this week's Women's Empowerment Power Hour with Dr. Jennifer. We know you have lots going on and lots of options to listen to. And we appreciate that you chose to spend some time with us. If you enjoyed our show, you can follow us wherever you find your podcasts to be sure that you don't miss an episode or listen to us on 360 Talk Radio for Women. Join us next week when we continue our discussions about issues relevant to powerful women doing amazing things. In the meantime, celebrate the amazing you and have an empowerful week.